Good morning. Oh, you can hear me breathing. I've been doing a quick poll this week, and I want you guys to, to help me out. And if you're online, also type a, your answer into the comments. Quick poll. Uh, one question, one question only. Here it is. Have you ever had a supervisor? Could be a, a boss, a teacher, a coach, um, someone in authority over you who just did not set clear expectations for you. That's, that's about the response I've been getting this week. Yeah, a little, little bit of nervous laughter. Uh, this person, whether they just have no idea what it is they want, or they have a very specific idea of what they want, they just can't communicate it to you. No matter what it is you try to do, you just can't please them. Has anyone been there? Don't raise your hand. That person might be in this room. Okay. Yeah. See, we have the desire to please the people in authority over us. I mean, we, we, we generally have goodwill. You know, we, we want to do well. We want to be effective. But there's nothing more stressful, in my opinion. There's nothing more frustrating. There's nothing that can grind on your gears day after day after day more than just not knowing what it is they want you to do. Well, I've got good news uh, for you this morning, friends, and that good news is Jesus makes it very clear what it is he desires from us. Jesus makes it very clear what it is he desires from us. He knows exactly what it is he wants because Jesus is God's heart enfleshed, and Jesus exposes, he, he clarifies, he shows us God's heart, and he makes it abundantly clear what it is that is required of us, and he's also really great at communicating it. And yes, last week, David started a series that we're calling Jesus for President, and we're going to walk through the Sermon on the Mount together. Now, the Sermon on the Mount was the greatest sermon ever preached, and we're not doing a sermon series on a sermon to try to beef it up or razzle-dazzle it. It's everything it needs to be. <laughs> no, the reason why we're doing this is not to expound on the Sermon on the Mount, not to raise the bar on the Sermon on the Mount, not, not to do anything like that, but to, only to bring clarity, only to shed light on the things that Jesus was saying. Because if you've ever read Scripture before, you know that sometimes we've got to do a little work to really understand what's going on. And so that's what I hope to do this morning. That's what we hope to do this morning as Jesus makes it abundantly clear for us what is expected of the people of God. In a word, it's righteousness. But Jesus challenges us this morning to reimagine righteousness. Jesus challenges us this morning to reimagine righteousness. And we're going to do that in the book of Matthew, chapter 5. So if you have Bibles with you, go ahead and open up. If not, scriptures will be on the screen. Last week, David walked us through the Beatitudes, where Jesus really flips the script of our current understanding of how the world works. And David described it as, uh, as a college student in CCU pulling the chair out from under his buddy, right? This morning, we're going to, on the heels of that, Jesus is going to continue not to, to shake things up just because he likes to watch us fall, but because Jesus loves us enough that when we put our faith in the wrong things and we're hanging our hat here, He's going to pull it out from under us and let us fall 
to get our attention, to wake us up. So in Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17, Jesus says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes on one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I'm telling you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. If the Sermon on the Mount were a boxing match, this would be the uppercut to the chin right here. I'm picturing uh, Rocky IV, Sylvester Stallone, drool spinning out. Maybe we can add that for online. Can you guys take care of that up there, get some, some drool? Thank you. Um, so we've had the chair pulled out from under us, and now we're getting an uppercut to the chin because this is a serious statement. Unless your righteousness exceeds that, is greater than, is more than that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never, not your chances are worse, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now let's talk about the Pharisees a little bit. Now the Pharisees had this idea of how they would live their lives and how they would train people to live life after them. And they had this perception about them in this world. Here's what the Pharisees think. God gave us the law. And the law expresses God's heart and it purely and clearly defines what is within God's will and what is not in God's will. And the Pharisees say, okay, so we take this and let's just, let's just call the law a border and let's just divide the stage up right here. So this is the law, and if I'm on this side of the law, I'm living within what God desires of me. I'm within the boundaries that God has set forth, and I'm going to live a good life because of that. God's going to bless me because I am living under the law. Now, if I cross this boundary, I'm no longer living under the law, and I'm going to be condemned because of that. I'm going to have negative consequences in my life because I'm not living under the law of God. So the Pharisees take this information and they're thinking, hmm, they're very pastoral. They're thinking, we don't want our people to be here. We don't want our people to receive the bad consequences of living outside of God's intent. So, if this is the law, if this is the boundary, if this is the wall that you shall not pass, what if we built a fence right here? This isn't God's fence, this is our fence. If we take all the laws, and I understand that this fence is not the rest of the Old Testament, the law has never been changed. Jesus didn't annul it, he fulfilled it. Everything that's in here is the law expressed by God and is perfect. But the Pharisees added on other stuff that we find in other uh, scrolls and other uh, documents. And they add all this other stuff and they're thinking, okay, so if our people think that this is God's law, we know people mess up. People mess up all the time. We mess up. So if someone breaks the law, but they really haven't broken God's law, they've stepped over our fence, they're going to feel really bad about it. They're going to repent. They're going to say, oh, my goodness, I stumbled. They're going to come back. They're going to repent. But guess what? They're never going to be outside of God's law, and they're never going to have to suffer the consequences of that. So that's the Pharisee's mentality, okay? So to a Pharisee, 
the further away I stay from bad, and the more good I do, the more righteous I am. The further away I stay from the bad, and the more good I do, the more righteous I am. The Pharisees are like, God, you gave us this many rules, we're going to double it. We're going to be more righteous than you're even asking for. Now, I want to ask you a serious question. And I don't want you to answer from the hip because you're sitting in this space right now. I want you to think critically about your life. And in your head and your heart, I want you to answer this question. How do you understand righteousness? Do you believe that the further away you stay from the bad and the more good you do, the more righteous you are? Jesus challenges us to reimagine righteousness. Because, friends, if, if that's what righteousness is, if it's keeping more rules, we've already got a fence here. Scribes and Pharisees are here, and Jesus says, it's got to be more than that. So if that's the way righteousness is, I'm running out of stage. i got to do a stage dive. It can't happen. Jesus is either asking us to do something that's impossible or he meant something different than righteousness, and that's what we get to grapple with this morning. Jesus challenges us to reimagine righteousness, and he shows us what righteousness is, what God's right way is, that God has declared from the very beginning. Jesus just clarifies it. He hones in on it. He's God's heart and flesh. He shows us what it looks like as a human person to live righteously. And it has a lot less to do with rule-keeping and regulations and a lot more to do with right relationship. Righteousness has far less to do about rule keeping and regulation than we imagine. And it has far more to do than we can understand about living in right relationship. So Jesus clarifies some more. He, he expands on this idea. He shows us what righteousness is in the next large chunk of Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus interacts with the law of Moses, which is really the law of God given through Moses. And he says this repeated phrase, you have heard that it was said, and then quotes the law. And he says, but I say to you, and then clarifies it. Again, Jesus is not adding to the law. He's not making things more difficult. He's not raising the bar. He's simply clarifying what God's heart has been from the very beginning. So let's see, there's, Jesus says a lot in this passage. He talks about anger. He talks about lust. He talks about divorce. He talks about oaths. He talks about retaliation, how we should treat people who are differently than us, how we should treat people who treat us poorly. We don't have time to dive into all of this this morning. I'm just going to be focusing on this first section, but I encourage you to take the time this afternoon to read the rest of Matthew chapter 5. But we'll pick up in verse 21. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Of course they heard that. That's Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. That's one of the Ten Commandments. That's one of the big ones, okay? And even the godless out there pretty much agree it's not a good idea to kill each other, okay? So of course they're familiar that this is a good idea. Continuing on, verse 22, but I say to you, emphasis on the I, 
that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Once again, whoa. Jesus says it's not just about killing one another. When you treat one another poorly, you're guilty of killing one another. Jesus says that God placed within every human being the image of himself. That he called them beloved. That he knit them together in the womb. And when you go out of your way to belittle someone, when you lump a group of people into this crowd and make judgments on them and make sweeping generalizations of them, when you buy into the lie that it's okay to shout things that are terrible to people as long as they're on a football field wearing a black and white striped shirt, you're guilty of murder. Why? Because we are exposing the notion in ourselves that we don't view others as highly as we view ourselves. We are tearing down a life of another, a life that God designed, a life that God intended, a life that God brought forth, and we're saying that's not as important to me as how I feel right now because I'm angry. Now let's see how Jesus applies this. We're going to continue on in verse 23. He's going to offer an application to the understanding this of what God meant when he said, don't kill one another. Verse 23. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, note, it's not you have something against your brother. Your brother has something against you. That means you did something wrong. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled with your brother, then come and offer the gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going to him with court, to, with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. A couple of observations here. Number one, we need to be very clear about what Jesus means by brother. Now, I think we can all agree he's not saying that this is how you are to treat someone who is your biological sibling who is a male. Can we at least agree on that? Okay. That's not what Jesus is saying. He, in other words, I'm not off the hook because I only have an older sister. Okay. We're, we're, all, we're all under this, okay? I don't think that Jesus is standing up on the Mount of Olives and he's saying, everyone who has brothers adopted or by blood, this is how you got to treat them. No, he's, he's saying... It's much more far-reaching than that. But I'm going to take it a step further, and I'm going to say what I believe Jesus is talking about. And I believe when Jesus uses brother in this context, he's talking about every fellow human being. Hear me. I don't think that in this context Jesus is talking about how we should treat our fellow believers. There are plenty of passages in the Scripture about that. That are, that are clear. This is talking about the fellowship of believers. This is how you are to act. I don't think Jesus is making that claim here. And work with me on this. I'm going to explain why I think that way. Because the way we interpret this word brother is huge. 
because it has massive implications for how we apply this text in our lives. So, we're going to look at the words of Jesus and the life of Jesus to see what Jesus means by brother. First of all, understand, in the words, brother is not a gender-exclusive thing. We're dealing with an old language, an old way of life, an old way of speaking, okay? So he's not just talking about men, okay? Women, you're not off the hook, okay? But brother, let's look at the text first with the words of Jesus, and I'm going to show why I believe Jesus is talking about this is how, this is the mandate of how you are to treat every fellow human being. Let's look in context of Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to pick up in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Wow. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. By the way, the you shall love your neighbor part, that is a direct quote of the law. The hate your enemy part, we made that up. That is not in the Old Testament law. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. What's our father like? He makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, God makes no distinction. For if you love those who love you, what regard... What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, in this instance, folks who agree with you in morality, in doctrine, and in practice, if you only greet them, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If we only love the people who agree with us in morality, in doctrine, and in practice. We are no different from the world. Hear me, friends. If we only love the people who agree with us on what's right and wrong, the people who teach the same things we teach, and the people who live life the same way we live our life, we are doing nothing different from the rest of the world. Let's keep going, more textual evidence. Later on, Jesus has an encounter with a lawyer. This guy's cut from the same cloth as the Pharisees, okay? And he says, Jesus, what's the most important law? Pretty good question. I wonder if Jesus thought about it for a minute, or if he was just like, this is very simple. I don't know how you can't see this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. In simple terms, love God, love your neighbor. So then the lawyer comes back at Jesus, he's like, yeah, you're right. Uh, question though, who is my neighbor? That's the question we're wrestling with this morning. Essentially, how far does my arm of love have to reach? How far past the boundary line that I put around myself of people I'm comfortable with do I have to reach out to? How far past my idea of what is right and wrong do I have to reach out to? How uncomfortable do I have to make myself? That's the question. 
Who is my neighbor? Who is this mandate for? Jesus answers him with a story. He tells a story about a Samaritan, someone who disagreed in doctrine with the Jews of the day, the people who the lawyer was and the people who Jesus spent most of his time with. Disagreed in doctrine. Samaritan who stumbles upon a Jew, someone who would not be same doctrine, same morality, and he, after people who agreed with this man in doctrine, I don't know what about the morality and practice part because they just walked by, what did the Samaritan do? You guys who know the story, what did he do? He helped him, thank you. In layman's terms, he helped a brother out. Let's look at the life of Jesus. If you read through the Gospels this week, I want you to get out a piece of paper, put a line in the middle. I want you to tally on one side the amount of people that Jesus interacts with and loves and shows God's unconditional love to, to the people who agree with him in morality, in doctrine, and in practice. All the people who agree with Jesus on what is right and wrong, on what he's teaching, and on how we're supposed to live it out. And on the other side, make a list of everyone that Jesus interacts with and shows his unconditional love with to people who don't agree with that. I want you to still read the gospel this week, but I'll go ahead and break it to you. You're going to find a whopping zero on the people who agree with him on everything. And yet he showed God's unconditional love to every one. So brother here is not talking about the people who we agree with brother here is not talking about the people who look like us. It is them as well, but it's not only them. The mandate that Jesus sets forth here is for all fellow human beings. Why? Because every human is made in the image of God. And God will not revoke his image from any person. So the application if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember, your brother has something against you, this is any fellow human being. Leave your gift before the altar and go. Let's talk about this a little bit. This is a part of the weekly worship rhythm for the Jews, offering gifts on the altar. Now, literally praise Jesus that we don't have to bring in bulls and goats and rams in here every Sunday and slaughter them and let the blood spill down off the stage, but that's what Jesus is talking about. So take yourself there, there's mooing, it's smelly, but we're in the midst of our worship time. This is what we do on a weekly basis as the people of God. You're on your way up to the altar to sacrifice your couple of doves, and you realize that you have wronged somebody. Jesus says, I want you to leave your animals there. I want you to cut your worship service short. You can come back to it, but I want you to drop everything and reconcile with your neighbor. Why? Because Jesus knew that anything between me and someone else is something between me and God. Anything that stands between me and someone else, any barrier, any wall that's been put up is a wall, is a barrier between me and my Father. And that's the whole point of worship, is it not? Communion with God. He's saying, if there's something in between you and your neighbor, just go ahead and call off the worship. 
or as I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it well. He says this, if we despise our brother, again, we're talking about any fellow human being, our worship is unreal. So long as we refuse to love and serve our brother and make him an object of contempt and let him harbor a grudge against me or the congregation, our worship and sacrifice will be unacceptable to God. God will not be separated from our brother. He wants no honor for himself as long as our brother is dishonored. God is the Father, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who became the brother, capital B, of us all. He who says he loves God and hates his brother is a liar. And that's a direct quote from 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. Jesus is not introducing anything new when he says, I would rather you figure it out with the person that you've wronged than carry on with your worship service. We're going to take a, a trip back into the book of Isaiah chapter 1. If you've got your Bibles, you can flip it there. Isaiah chapter 1. I'm going to start at verse 11. This is the word of the Lord through the man, Isaiah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-felled beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. The word of the Lord. Now, I wanted to modernize this a little bit with your permission, and this is not to make the text say anything it's not saying. I just, I want us to understand what it is saying, because these are all factions of the weekly rhythm of worship, and so this is what I believe God is saying to us. What worth is your religious scorecard to me? I've had enough church attendance, hefty offering checks, and heaping up prayers from the pews. I take no delight in this. When you come to church on Sunday, who told you to carry on like this? You know what? Stop coming to church on Sunday. Quit singing your songs. Quit pretending that Christmas and Easter are important to you because of me and not your religiously endorsed consumerism. I can't bear to go on like this anymore. Not one more Sunday of this charade. Your worship services suck the joy right out of my heart. Pray all you want. I'm done listening. Why does God feel this way? Why is God so vehemently against our worship services? Let's continue on in verse 15. He says, when you make many prayers, I will not listen. Why? Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. In other words, the blood is on the streets and it's on your heads. Injustice is running rampant outside our walls. And until we're willing to do something about it, I'm not so sure that God's very pleased. There's too much evil going on that we allow to happen. 
because the church is not being the church. The reason that there are continual systems of injustice, that there is violence, that there is drug abuse, that there is child abuse, is because the church is not being the church. It's not because we've had the wrong folks in the Oval Office and in Congress, friends. It's because the church isn't being the church. It's because we're neglecting our brothers and sisters who are outside the fold. It's because people are too uncomfortable and too dangerous, and I'm not sure how to interact with them, so I'm going to withdraw. And there are people who say, I have no other choice than to turn to this addiction. And then people who are addicted say, I would rather stay addicted than step out in a world where I'm alone. Because at least I have more friends here. Let's continue in verse 18. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord is spoken. Behind every word of warning from the prophets comes a call to repentance. Behind every word of judgment from God comes an invitation to turn, to change. Behind every word of discipline from our Heavenly Father is a heart of love that calls out, come, come. Let's pray this prayer together. I'm going to read aloud and I want you to speak the words to Jesus, either in your head and heart or you can whisper them softly if that helps you. Repeat after me. Jesus, I'm sorry. I've not loved you with my whole heart. I've not loved my neighbors as myself. I've been carrying anger against my neighbor. I've made my neighbor my enemy. I've done things I should not have done to someone you died for. I've said things I should not have said to someone you deeply love. I've concealed bitterness and judgment in my heart against people you made in your image. By all these things, I've shown repeatedly that I value my own life far more than the life of my neighbors. I'm sorry. Jesus, I have no excuses for what I've done. And I have no hope of correcting my heart alone. 
please forgive me. Please accept me. Please make my heart more like yours. Continue with your eyes closed. I want you to imagine Jesus standing up from the throne in all of his power and radiant holiness. Walking towards you slowly. And wrapping his arms around you in the warmest, most genuine embrace you've ever received.